0: In the Anglican Church, there's all these liturgical responses, you know, like the the minister will say, the Lord be with you, and the congregation responds, and also with you, it's like how we say hello. So one Sunday, I was a guest speaker in an Anglican Church, and I got up, and, and, uh, and I thought there was something wrong with the microphone, and I was fiddling with it, and I said, something wrong with this thing, and the congregation responded, and also with you. That's that's when sort of liturgical condition responses are are not a good thing. This um, most of most of the time, my job is to offer leadership to this wonderful non governmental organization. But the last week has been a bit unusual. Um, a, a week ago tomorrow, I officiated the funeral of another cousin, and uh, that doesn't happen very often. Good news, um, but. Uh, He was an electrician, and just as I began my remarks, the power went out. So I'm kind of standing against that this morning, hoping that's not gonna happen this morning as I begin my remarks. It made an interesting end to the remarks at a funeral, though, to say, this is a time when we could really use an electrician. Would you uh, pray with me for a moment? Lord, would you bless my words and Would you touch all of our hearts so that we may be open to the power and the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So a Saturday afternoon at the movies is normally a pleasant thing. But one summer day when I was a teenager, I went to a movie with a girl from my high school, and it turned out to be anything but a pleasant experience. There were two groups of boys in the uh, theatre audience who started tossing insults back and forth during the movie. And as the audience left and we were out on the sidewalk, all of a sudden these, uh, it turned into a violent fistfight between these two groups of boys. And to my shock, one of the boys picked another one up off the ground and threw him through the plate glass window of a store adjacent to the theater. And one of the sheets of plate glass just came down like like a guillotine blade and sliced deeply into the arm of the one who had been tossed. And he stood up kind of dazed and he said, look at my arm. And then he just sprinted off, leaving a trail of blood behind him. Well, to make a long story short, the police took a statement from the girl and me, and a week later, I got a call asking if I could come down to the police station to identify a suspect. And I can't begin to tell you how disappointed in myself I felt to have to reply to the police officer on the phone that it had all gone down so quickly that I wasn't sure that I would even be able to identify the one who had been involved in that act of violence the week before. And in too many instances, wouldn't you agree that that is the nature of violence? That violence can come in a way that is blinding and shocking and with an unexpected flash. Some of you, I know, have experienced violence personally. Whether it's connected to your work or tragically as the result of a violent partner or parent, you know the horror of violence. And all of us hear news stories and perhaps read academic reports about the incidence of violence in Canada, but those who have been victims of violence don't experience violence as a soundbite or as a statistic. It can be blinding and shocking. And then, for those of you who have been fortunate enough never to encounter violence personally, never to have been a victim of violence, then discussions about violence can seem like an abstraction or merely an unpleasant kind of a topic. You've come to assume that Canada, whenever possible, uh, in Canada, whenever possible, our police intervene to stop violence when it occurs. Yeah, Canada is a relatively safe country. Violence doesn't touch most Canadians personally. My wife and I reassure our boys that this is one of the great benefits of living in this country. By and large, we enjoy good government, and honest police, and functional courts. But in parts of the world where governments and justice systems are weak, the threat of violence is a constant companion. There, violence can be insidious, not so much a flash as it is a slow burn. Now Christians try to make sense of life through the lens of faith. So you and I owe it to ourselves to see reality for what it is, not just as it applies to us personally, but how others experience it too. And I'd like you to see that violence is, in fact, a human act, perhaps more offensive to the heart of God than any other. That's what the Bible says, that violence is a human act more offensive to the heart of God than any other. Violence is a profound and recurring theme throughout all of Scripture. And this morning I want to dig into this theme from the Bible and then talk about a particular form of violence and how we can participate in stopping it. To convey this theme from Scripture, I'm leaning heavily on some insights from Gary Haugen. Gary is the founder and the CEO of International Justice Mission, the organization that I work for. Uh, Gary was the UN's lead investigator into the genocide in Rwanda that resulted in the genocide of some 800,000 people over a period of three months. And Gary is a truly godly man. His devotion inspires me and in all truth I genuinely believe that his intellect, his relentlessness, and his commitment will prove through the lens of history to be no less admirable than Any hero of Christian history. Watch for his name. Now, Scripture tells us that the fall unleashed a horrible sin into the world, the sin of violence. It begins the first sin with Cain killing Abel. And it got so bad that by the time of Noah, God said that he was going to destroy the whole human story with a flood, because humans had filled the earth with violence. The book of Genesis says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth." Well, ultimately, as we know, God decided not to end the human race, and instead he began his, to work his long-term plan to redeem all of creation through the reign of his son, Jesus, who would personally establish a new heaven and a new earth where every tear would be wiped away and where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. This is how we know the story will end. But in the meanwhile, this sin of violence constantly threatens to get out of control. So in the ancient biblical story, God came up with a temporary solution to restrain the violence. He gave a measure of coercive power, sometimes called the sword to government rulers so that they could protect the vulnerable from the violence of the strong. And the idea of the ruler as protector is celebrated over and over again throughout the Bible. The psalmist said, endow the king with justice, O God. May he defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans wrote, there is no governing authority except from God, for the ruler bears the sword to punish those who do evil. Now later, great theologians like Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, and Bonhoeffer would disagree on all kinds of things but they all agreed on the most basic purpose of rulers, to restrain violence against the weak. In fact, when rulers use their power to restrain violence, even pagan rulers like King Cyrus of Persia and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Bible calls them God's instruments. Not just among the people of Israel, not just followers of Jesus, but others used as God's instruments because they protected the vulnerable from violence. But right away in the Bible, a huge problem with God's solution arose. What if the rulers failed to do their God-given job, or worse, if the rulers were committing the acts of violence themselves. So God's new solution for this problem was to raise up a prophet, that is a spokesperson, who would remind the ruler of his responsibility to God and would call the ruler to account. In the case of Egypt, God raised up the prophet Moses who confronted Pharaoh. The prophet protected the vulnerable and the Israelites in Egypt, were rescued from slavery. Well, the story goes on. Eventually, the Israelites grew into a nation and they wanted their own king. God warned them through the prophet Samuel that putting a human king on the throne would present certain dangers. Samuel warned a king will be tempted to abuse his power to oppress you, to steal from you, and to enslave you. But the Israelites, being human beings, decided that they wanted to take their chances. So what happened? God's warning became a reality. So take, for example, the plight of a beautiful young woman named Tamar. Tamar's tragedy is described in the second book of Samuel, chapter 13. King David's son, Amnon, became obsessed with Tamar, and in order to satisfy his lust, he deceived Tamar into going to a place where he could force himself onto her. And after the horrible act was done, the Bible says that his loathing was even greater than the lust that he had felt for her. So what did King David do when he heard about the rape of Tamar? Well, the Bible says David became very angry, but he refused to punish his son, Amnon. King David was the ruler. King David was the sword. King David represented legitimate authority, but failed to act. So in the end, what happened? Vigilante justice prevailed, not good. Ultimately, Amnon was murdered in cold blood out of revenge and in a spirit of hate, not as a reflection of true justice. Well, you know, in today's language, Tamar was a victim of human trafficking. A vulnerable young woman, trapped into a situation that exposed her to risk, exploited for personal gain, attacked by a powerful man, and discarded. There are thousands of variations on the theme today, and any girl who has been trafficked into a brothel or forced into prostituting herself in a sleazy motel room will tell you that Tamar's story is essentially her story. And King David's lack of response is too frequent today, too, whenever our world's justice systems fail to act. Violence leads to violence until the girl has been completely used up and then tossed aside like a dirty rag. Tamar's story is just one example of what happens when rulers neglect their responsibility. And it's barely one chapter in one book of the Bible's tragic story for the next 700 years. In fact, if you step back and look at it, the biblical saga is the story of hundreds of years of mostly bad kings who did not restrain violence against the weak. And it's the story of the prophets who called the rulers back to their earthly purpose. And by the way, about a half a dozen of these prophets in the scriptures were women. This continues to be the biblical narrative throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Even in one of the most familiar Bible stories that we tell to our children of Jonah and the uh, the whale, for what sin was Jonah sent to confront the Assyrian king of of Nineveh? For the Ninevites' violence. In the book of Jonah, we read, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. This prophetic ministry to rulers continues right into the New Testament with John the Baptist, who called all the people to repentance, but who named three specifically, the tax collectors, the soldiers, and King Herod, all three agents of government. And of course, the climactic story of the New Testament is the crucifixion of Jesus under the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate, an agent of government. Indeed, this centerpiece of Christian history is an act of violence and the complicity of government authorities in that violence. So anyone who thinks that God doesn't care about... Anyone who thinks that God doesn't care about how government rulers use their authority Well, that person, I'd suggest, doesn't know the God of Scripture very well. This survey of Scripture that I've just presented highlights that at the heart of much of the world's injustice is the offense of violence. Violence is a root cause of injustice, and violence contributes to keeping the world's poor in poverty. But what role have Christians played in addressing it over the 2,000 years since Jesus suffered a cruel death at the hands of unjust rulers? Well, I wish I could declare to you that throughout history, Christians have been champions in the struggle to end this injustice, but I can't. Because it was a nefarious and toxic relationship that formed between the church and secular rulers when Christianity was declared the religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And the rise of Christendom, an era when bishops had the power of princes, reinforced this unholy alliance. Christians became complicit in the violence, especially through colonialism and the slave trade. On the other hand, among Protestants, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the Second World War, spoke out against violence and the complicity between church and state, even to the point of suffering a violent death himself. And among Roman Catholics, Archbishop Oscar Romero appealed to both church and state to end violence in El Salvador right up until he suffered a bullet through the heart for his outspokenness as he stood at the altar celebrating Mass. Hanging on the wall in my office is this photograph. This little girl's name is Rosita. And I was with Rosita in 2005 when this photograph was taken. Just look at her. I mean, what what a beautiful little girl, seven years old, shiny black hair, that enigmatic expression on her face. It's hard to know what it really expresses, but a picture of innocence. When I met her, seven years old, she was living in a tumble-down house, that's the exterior wall of the house behind her, with her grandfather, a kind man named Cornelio. Rosita lived in El Salvador, a country in Central America, where gang violence is rampant. And for many years, during my humanitarian visits to El Salvador, I would visit or inquire about Rosita. How's Rosita? How's her grandfather, Cornelio? But in 2013, when Rosita was just 15 years old, I learned that Rosita had been trafficked into a gang. No one knows where she was taken. And Rosita's fate, like that of many Salvadoran girls, was to become a victim of violent sexual exploitation or a pawn in the illegal movement of drugs or weapons. Rosita humanizes the faceless violence endured by so many of the world's vulnerable. Whether it's in El Salvador or among indigenous girls who are trafficked into prostitution in Canada, or teenagers in India who are sold to a brothel owner, or men and women who are trafficked into a life of forced labor, human trafficking represents one of the most insidious forms of violence in the world today. According to the United Nations, the smuggling of human beings for the purposes of forced labor and and sexual exploitation Is on a par tied for first place with illegal arms sales and drug trafficking. Human trafficking nets a hundred and fifty billion dollars every year and traffickers pour vast resources into their uh, profitable enterprises, energy, strategy, money, cunning, and often they commit these horrible acts of violence with impunity. Now, the the term human trafficking can actually be quite misleading because it places emphasis on the transaction aspects of the crime or even the transportation aspects of a crime, when human trafficking is more accurately described simply as enslavement. Human trafficking is modern slavery. It's the heartless and usually violent exploitation of people day after day for years on end. The International Labour Organization, an agency of the United Nations, estimates that 40.2 million people are victims of modern slavery. Just, just pause and think about that for a second. 40.2 million people in the world right now are in some form of slavery. That's more than the population of Canada. That's many more people than the number of slaves who were transported from Africa to other parts of the world over the entire 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. And yet, on paper, slavery is against the law in every country in the world. Now, if there's any hope in the face of such, Overwhelming numbers. It's that after much neglect and indifference the world is waking up to this reality Finally the public and the media are becoming aware that humans prey upon humans for money and that slavery is not a thing of the past Since 1997 International Justice Mission has been working throughout the developing world to protect victims of violence and We do this in a unique way we work with the local authorities to rescue victims. And we support the survivors to provide the loving care they need to find dignity and wholeness. We work with the local police to restrain the perpetrators. And we work with the judiciary, the justice system, to represent the survivors throughout the court process until justice is achieved. This is a different kind of missions organization. We we collaborate with the local authorities in the places where we work, and we physically enter those facilities where people are being held against their will and being exploited in order that they can be rescued and the perpetrators arrested. And our ultimate objective in doing all this, that we mustn't lose sight of, we're not just a rescue organization, our ultimate objective is to strengthen justice systems until the prevalence of the crime we're addressing in that area has been eliminated. And we've had remarkable success, in part because we are more committed to using our resources to end the crime than human resources are committed to using their resources to profit from it. So to win, we know that we have to match or exceed the determination of the criminals and we can win. For instance, in the city of Cebu, the second largest city in the Philippines, the efforts of International Justice Mission resulted in a 79 percent drop in the availability of minors for commercial sexual exploitation over a period of four years. Do you hear what I'm saying about IJM's work in relation to what the Bible says about violence? I'm telling you that Christians today have managed to organize a movement that has reclaimed Scripture's prophetic ministry to rulers. And I want to say to you as forcefully as I can that you and I, ordinary Canadian Christians, have a biblically mandated obligation to support efforts that remind rulers of their God-given responsibility. A responsibility to protect the weak and not to inflict violence themselves. And you know, tragically, the more we North American Christians reduce Christian faith to a personal piety that serves primarily to energize, heal, and give meaning to our individual lives, the more impoverished we allow the Christian faith to become. Christianity must be known for more than groups of believers who gather to sing a few uplifting songs, read some reassuring Bible verses, and listen to a motivational message. The more the core themes of Christian faith matter to believers, And the more we hold to the scriptural foundation of the faith like I've outlined for you this morning, the better off the world will be. A couple years ago, I visited an impoverished neighborhood, again, in the Philippines. It's an area known to be a place where children are victims of cyber sex trafficking. Cyber sex trafficking is a devastating form of modern slavery. It's the live-streamed sexual exploitation of children viewed over the internet. And with the recent rise of internet across the world, the Philippines has, according to Interpol, become the primary supplier of children for online sexual exploitation worldwide. Customers around the world, including Canadians, pay to stream live videos and abusive images of children being forced to perform sexual acts right before their eyes in real-time. Thankfully, during my visit to the Philippines, I met Vice Governor Agnes McPale. Vice Governor McPale is a Christian woman and a powerful government authority deeply committed to ending this violence against children. She has heard the prophetic call and exercises her power to protect And not harm. Somebody must intervene on these children's behalf, and we do. But in the Philippines, in India, in Thailand, and many other places, it's not enough merely to rescue these children. That's an approach that touches the symptom of injustice, but fails to stop the violence at its root. IJM takes a systematic approach that not only rescues victims, but also strengthens police and courts. The capacity of nation's authorities must be strengthened and governments held to account so that the violence will stop. Christians who are familiar with the God of the scriptures must band together to hold rulers to account. Now, I'm grateful to my cousin Mark and the people of this church for your determination to focus your attention on the biblical mandate to do justice. As followers of Jesus, we do well to follow the imperative of Isaiah chapter one, verse 17, to seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Collectively as a congregation you can be an example of what it looks like for Christians to band together to raise a prophetic voice in Faithful response to Isaiah 117 and I think you can take it a step further though Because I want to ask you as an individual Not just as a congregation To identify personally with the long line of prophets and judges who have stood up to violent rulers. I want you individually to be able to say, I am an Isaiah, I am a Nehemiah, I am a Deborah. And maybe you're a bit uncomfortable being asked to do this. And if so, you can say, I am a Jonah, and then be very careful when traveling by boat. But as an individual, I want you personally to decide how you can stand up to violence, stand up against human trafficking, stand up to modern slavery. Perhaps you'll even declare yourself to be an abolitionist. The world needs us to be abolitionists. Millions are crying out for emancipation. And I want you to answer this question for yourself. When people think of what a Christian is, do they generally think of a Christian as one who does justice? Or do they generally think of a Christian as one who goes to church? And I want you personally to make the, the conscious decision to identify as a person who does justice. Last year, I had uh, lunch with a friend, Barry. Barry's well into his 70s now. And I asked him if he'd seen the recent article in Maclean's magazine rating the top 100 Canadian charities. Yes, I did. And I noticed that International Justice Mission Canada was given an A grade. And with those words, he handed me a check for IJM. I like to see that the money I give is used effectively, he said. Well, for Barry, in his 70s, at his stage in life, one of the best ways he can stand up against violence is by giving money to organizations that do the work. And when it comes to the end of your own life, I want the people who remember you to say that you were a person who lived in the the spirit of Isaiah one who was determined to seek justice, Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we turn to scripture with the prayer that through it your Holy Spirit will convict our hearts of the truth. And I pray that this morning, as the result of our review of your word and your heart for justice, that we will be moved to respond in a way that contributes to the building of your kingdom on this earth. Would you help us to see that we are people who have been placed on this earth to make a difference? and that through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit and the conviction that comes to us through your Scriptures, we can ensure that those who are in this moment in bondage may be set free. For this is what Jesus came proclaiming and has called us to do, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.